All right, well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16? Now, as we have been working our way through Matthew's Gospel on Sunday morning here at Calvary, we have come to chapter 16, and we've kind of camped on the first four verses for a, a couple, three weeks. Well, let's read them together, and we'll talk a little bit more. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. That's the title of this series. A wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, last time we developed those four verses in some detail, so if you weren't here, um, get the CD. But we used especially verses 2 and 3 to launch us into this little mini-series we're doing on prophecy, essentially. You know, when Jesus said here in verse 2, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. He was really quoting an old uh, proverb. And Jesus was quoting this proverb to basically indict them. He was saying, look, you know, you can look into the sky. And based on the signs in the sky, you can predict the weather. But you cannot look into my word and see all the signs that God has given to you in his word of the signs of the Messiah's coming and you're ignorant to the coming of the Messiah? See, God had given to them many signs. And we we talked last week about the signs of His first coming, because, of course, that was what He was indicting them for, for not knowing the signs of His first coming. We said that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that deal with Jesus Christ's first coming. And last time we just looked at three. We looked at the three that I think were the most on Jesus' mind when He said this. Things that he would be holding them accountable for that were obvious that they should have known. And we looked at these last time. First of all, John the Baptist as the forerunner of Messiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse, uh, verse 1, God had prophesied that before Messiah would come, he would send a herald. Every king had a herald who went before him. John the Baptist went before the king of kings. And when John showed up in the wilderness preaching, prepare your hearts for the coming of the king. Make straight his paths. Well, that was a quote out of Isaiah 40, verse 3. They should have known that, look, this guy was the prophesied one, the forerunner of the Messiah. If he's here, the Messiah is not far behind. So first of all, John the Baptist was a sign that Messiah was here. Number two, we looked at the miracles of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, in several places, but especially Isaiah 35, God said, I'm going to tell you how you're going to know my Messiah, the true Messiah, because he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to cause the dumb to speak, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, and so on. He is going to back up his ministry with signs and wonders, miracles, which will authenticate him as the true Messiah. And so we looked at some of those as we have studied Matthew's Gospel. And then number three, the prophecy in Daniel 9 is a tremendous 
sign. I mean, where God predicted the very day Messiah would come riding into Jerusalem. In fact, here we are, Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, God prophesied that when, when the commandment would go forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, start counting, and I'll just paraphrase, 173,880 days later, Messiah would come. Well, March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes gave the command to, to Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild its walls. If you add those 173,880 days to that starting point, it brings you out to April 6th, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday. Here we are, Palm Sunday, right? What a great time to remember that prophecy. You know, before Palm Sunday of April 6, 32 A.D., they tried to take him by force several times to make him king. But he would not allow it. He slipped away. His time had not yet come. But now his time had come. And he presents himself to the nation. Of course, his disciples are cheering and yelling Hosanna and putting palm branches uh, on, the, on the road in front of him. But the Jewish leaders had rejected him. The nation, for the most part, had rejected him as their Messiah. And so if you read the account in uh, Luke chapter 19, as he comes to the top of the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, he overlooks Jerusalem. He begins to weep. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I mean, if you had only known the day of your visitation. What does that mean? This was the very day that was prophesied to you in the book of Daniel. The day when Messiah would visit his people and proclaim himself to be king. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And Jesus indicted the people of his day for not knowing prophecy, for not knowing the signs that pointed to his first coming. Those that ignored those signs suffered the consequences. We know in 70 A.D., after they had rejected their Messiah, the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem, leveled it, leveled the temple, slaughtered over a million Jews, all because they did not know the day of their visitation. Jesus Christ held them accountable for knowing prophecy. Well, fast forward 2,000 years to our day. Do you know how many Christians and Christian leaders there are in the church today who are just as ignorant of Jesus' second coming as those guys were of his first coming? And there's no excuse for it because he's given us 500 prophecies that deal with the second coming. It's just sad to me that we don't see in the church today many churches really focusing on Bible prophecy anymore. Um, when I got saved, the rapture, man, everyone was waiting for the rapture. We were all had our eyes in the rapture, waiting for Jesus to rapture his church. Today, a lot of churches don't even believe in the rapture anymore, let alone teach it. It's a sad day. I mean, a lot of pastors today don't want to teach prophecy. They think it's divisive. It scares people. You know, we don't want to chase people out of the church. We want to bring them in. It makes them uncomfortable to talk about end times and so on and so forth. Well, excuse me, are you the Holy Spirit? Who puts you in as editor of the Bible to edit out what you think shouldn't belong there? 27% of the Bible is prophecy. Who do we think we are that we can edit out a big chunk of God's Word? And say, well, I don't think it's really necessary. I don't think it's good. It doesn't really edify people. Who are you to say that? You know, the Bible says those who are looking for His coming are keeping themselves pure. Knowing the signs of the times motivates us to live holy lives. Why? Because Jesus is coming back soon and I don't want Him to find me all tangled up with the world when He gets here. It promotes holiness. 1 John 3, 2 and verse 3. Let's take a moment to look at a few of the signs of His second coming. I mean, you know, we're not going to look at all 500, although some of you might be thinking, knowing you, you, 
You would. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, Here's the thing. I just want to whet your appetite a little bit, okay? We'll spend one more week on this, the week after Resurrection Sunday, uh, looking at some of the signs. But I want to just whet your appetite because there's great resources. I mean, you can go online and and look at uh, Prophecy News Watch, RaptureReady.com, Hal Lindsey Report. There's all kinds of great websites that are always given current information about prophecy and the signs of the times. So I'll leave that to you to dig those out. But last week, one of the major signs that we focused on was the the sign of Israel becoming a nation again. This was one of the greatest signs that that actually got us, the church, really excited about the Lord's return. You know, for many centuries, Bible scholars believe that any prophecy of Israel becoming a nation again was just allegorical. There's no way Israel could become a nation again. Because in 70 AD, the nation was destroyed. Jews were scattered. So a nation has never been out of its land for 2,000 years to be regathered and become a nation again. Let alone to speak their native language, which was Hebrew, which God predicted would happen once again. Hebrew was a dead language. It was only spoken by, uh, by the uh, Jewish religious leaders, the priests, and so on. But God says in the last days, Isaiah 30, uh, Ezekiel 37, he showed Ezekiel a valley of dry bones. Dry bones mean those bones have been dead for a long time. Ezekiel said, what is this, Lord? God says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And even though Israel has been a dead nation for many years, in the last days, I'm going to bring them together. And, Isaiah, and Ezekiel saw the bones begin to you know, rattle, begin to come together, the knee bone to the ankle bone and whatever, you know. And all of a sudden, uh, muscle and sinew began to form on the bones, flesh, and they stood up as a great army. But they had no breath in them. The spirit was not in them, but they had become a nation again. Israel today is a secular nation. It will become a spirit-filled nation in the millennial kingdom. But right now, secular nation. They're alive, even though those bones became alive. But that was God's way of saying, in the last days, I am going to cause the nation of Israel to be born again. Well... On May 14, 1948, the modern state of Israel was born again. They declared themselves a nation and began to speak Hebrew once again. Such an incredibly miraculous thing. The L.A. Times devoted a whole page to how impossible that was, and it was a miracle. No nation has ever come back into their land after 2,000 years, become a nation again to speak their own native tongue, which was dead for 2,000 years. Absolutely miraculous. That caused... Biblical scholars and just average Christians to be set on fire. Because they had all, most of them believed Israel was not literal, it was allegorical. Well, now they realized, no, God was speaking literally. What other prophecies have we allegorized that God was speaking literally? Boy, people began to dive into their Bibles again. Okay, that was a great sign of the end times. I'll give you another one this morning. Israel being attacked is a great sign of Jesus' return. So, no, wait a minute. Israel has been attacked many times throughout their history. That's true. But the Bible predicts that in the last, in the end times, Israel will be, will be attacked by a confederation of enemies mostly made up of Muslim nations. And guys, that particular battle has never happened. We know in Ezekiel 38, 
verses 1 to 6, God even lists the names of the nations that would come together to fight against Israel. He talks about Russia, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, Ethiopia, Libya. Libya is in North Africa, west of Egypt. And Ethiopia is south of Egypt. talks about Gomer, which is eastern Germany and the Slavic countries. Tagarma, which is Turkey and Armenia. These are predominantly Muslim countries. The Bible I- implies that the final battle, or this battle, I should say, uh, against Israel by these nations is not going to be fought for any other reason than religious reasons. And if you know what motivates the Muslim, the hardcore Muslims is they have to wipe out all infidels. And Israel is second on the list only to America. America is the great Satan. Israel is the little Satan. That's where we, they put us. So, uh, so they have a, a demonic hatred for Israel in particular. And they believe that they have to wipe out Israel uh, before, uh, before the world can begin to become Islamicized. And that's the goal of Islam, is to Islamicize the whole world. Okay? Um, but this battle, the Bible predicts, will take place in the last days. Turn to Ezekiel 38. And I challenge you to study chapters 38 and 9 on your own. Fascinating study. I'm only going to read you two verses out of Ezekiel 38. And God here is talking now to Israel's enemies. The nations that he has talked about in verses 1 to 6. As I read this, keep in mind he's talking to their enemies now about what they're going to do to his people. Verse 8, after many days. Now this would be after the regathering of Israel back into their land as prophesied in chapter 37, right? After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of nations, and now all of them dwell safely. That's God's people he's talking about. How he brought them from many nations scattered throughout the world to bring them back to the land of Israel. Verse 9, speaking to their enemies, you will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and all your troops and many peoples with you. God is saying that at one point all these nations are going to come together to attack his people. Well, what brings that attack about? Well, they hate Israel. Um, Some of them absolutely do hate Israel with a passion. But what is going to precipitate? What is going to be the thing that will just be a flashpoint? What event will happen to actually motivate these people to come in against Israel? Well, nothing happens in a vacuum. And we see even right now as we speak, the table or the stage is being set or has been set for what's going to lead, I believe, to the very thing that will cause these nations to come in against Israel. Let me read to you uh, from an article that appeared in U.S. News and World Report some time ago. Uh, let me read it to you, and I quote, Iran today is the mother of Islamic terrorism. Tehran openly provides funding, training, and weapons to the world's worst terrorists, including Hezbollah, Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and it has a cozy relationship with Al-Qaeda. Iran today is in the grip of yet a new wave of extremists. Its president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, is a revolutionary firebrand who has directly threatened the West. In his own words, in quoting Ahmadinejad, we are in the process of an, of an historical war between 
the world of arrogance, talking about the West, okay, and the Islamic world, end quote. His foreign policy, U.S. News and World Report says, uh, his foreign policy ambition is an Islamic government for the whole world. That's what I just said. The whole world has to be Islamicized. Uh, under the leadership of the Mahdi, which was the Muslim Messiah. Say, the Mahdi is the Muslim Messiah. And um, as we're going to see in a moment, he won't come back unless there is some kind of a world conflict. Ahmadinejad casts himself as Hitler reincarnated, calling for Israel to be, quote, wiped off the map, unquote. Now, that's interesting because there is no Muslim map in the world that even shows Israel on the map. So, you know, wipe off a what map? You, You don't even show Israel on your maps. But the report goes on in Russia, has made the threat more real. Here's where it gets really interesting. It sold the nuclear power plant of Bashur to Iran and contracted to sell even more to bring cash into its nuclear industry. As one American diplomat put it, this business is a, listen, giant hook in Russia's jaw, end quote. Now, I want you to hang on to that because I'm going to tell you why that's important. I don't know if this guy was a Christian, but those were definitely words put into his mouth by the Holy Spirit, okay? Of course, most of you, if not all of you here, know about Hal Lindsey prophecy expert and all, written books on prophecy, is, gives a report, uh, a weekly or uh, bi-weekly or monthly report on um, prophecy. Let me read to you um, an article he put out some time ago that dovetails with this. Uh, he said, and I quote, Russia has helped the Iranian nuclear program from its inception. Hundreds of Russian scientists with their families live around the some 20 scattered nuclear-related facilities. Russian Spetsnaz soldiers, which are special forces, guard all the key nuclear facilities. The first part of this strategy was Russia enabling Iran to produce deliverable nuclear warheads. The second part was the forming of the recent mutual defense pact between uh, Iran, Syria, and then, of course, Russia. The foreign ministers of Iran and Syria signed the pact in Tehran on June 15th of 06. It's still in force, okay? Debka's intelligence sources unveiled a disturbing clause in the agreement that was reported to President Bush by U.S. intelligence. The report disclosed, and I'm quoting the report now, the clause speaks of more than one battery of upgraded Shehab-3 surface-to-surface missiles to be deployed on the 13,000-foot Jabal Ash Shanin ridges towering over central Syria. So that's a big, tall mountain range in central Syria that they have put all these surface-to-surface missiles on. Lindsay goes on to say, this puts virtually all of Europe within range of the soon-coming nuclear-tipped Iranian missiles and at the whim of Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Remember him, Lindsay said? He is the one who believes Allah has chosen him to fulfill an end-times Muslim prophecy by starting a world apocalypse in which the long-awaited Mahdi, or Muslim Messiah, will appear and subject all survivors to Allah. You see, the Mahdi won't come back, the Muslim Messiah, unless there's this kind of this world conflict. Uh, Ahmadinejad sees himself as the one who will start that conflict. Lindsay goes on to say the American intelligence briefing for the U.S. president further disclosed that sophisticated Russian air defense systems are to be installed for the dual purpose of protecting the TARDIS naval base and the Shehab-3 missile emplacements. It will be operated, listen, by Russian military crews and not put in Syrian hands. Even though these 
missiles are in Syria, Russia says, no, no, no. We're not going to let you guys handle these. We'll handle them, okay? We'll operate these missiles. This explains why Iran has blatantly defied the world and continued developing nuclear warheads, which are closer to becoming operational than we dare believe. Well, that's been in the news quite a bit lately. How that they are afraid now, Iran is about ready to, you know, they keep telling us, oh, it's years down the road. No, it's not years down the road. In fact, I think it's here now. I think it's here now. It further explains why Syria and Iran are unafraid to openly are unafraid to openly support Hezbollah in their war with Israel and support terrorists that target U.S. troops in Iraq. Russia is in the background guaranteeing their protection. Debka reports that they found data indicating that Russia helped persuade Syrian President Bashar Assad to accept the placement of Iranian missiles on their soil by hinting that, and I'm quoting now Russian diplomats. It is part of their own deepening strategic plans for Syria. So Russia has got plans for Syria. And here's the thing. Because Russia has entered into this uh, pact, this treaty with Iran and Syria, if Israel attacks Syria, guess who they're attacking? Russia as well. This is why the whole thing is very dicey. Okay, And that's why Syria and Iran are so bold. And thumbing their noses at the West, they're not afraid of us. they got Russia backing them. Lindsay goes on to say, and this is where it gets down to where we're coming from this morning. He goes on to say what is most important is that all this is setting up Ezekiel's 2,600-year-old prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38. Persia, or modern Iran, is listed as a chief among the Muslim nations. Russia will lead into an all-out assault against Israel. This is predicted to be the first battle of the war of Armageddon. The one nation that does not seem to be listed is Syria. So if you read the prophecy in Ezekiel 30, as we just did, of all the enemy nations that come against Israel, Syria is not mentioned. Why is that? Because Israel and Syria become friends? No, not really. Lindsay goes on to say, I believe this is because Syria is not mentioned in Ezekiel 38 because as a result of actions it is now taking against Israel, Isaiah's prophecy about Damascus in the last days is going to soon be fulfilled. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah warned in Isaiah chapter 17, verses 1 to 3, that God was going to destroy Damascus. He was going to reduce the city in one fell swoop into a smoldering heap of rubble. Now think about that if you lived several hundred years ago. There is no way you could destroy a city a whole city at one time in one move and leave it a smoldering heap of rubble. Today we can do that, right? Lindsay goes on to say, to establish the time of this event, look at these factors. First, Damascus is the oldest continuously populated city on earth. It has never been totally destroyed yet. Say That's why we know Isaiah 17 is yet future. Because Damascus has never been totally destroyed, yet God says he's going to totally wipe it out. So we know the battle is future. Second, the prophecy in Isaiah is in the context, he says, of events that lead up to the catastrophes that precede the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. Syria, in the tribal name of its forefathers, are not mentioned in the Russian-led Muslim confederacy in Ezekiel chapter 38. That's because Lindsay... And others, including myself, believe Damascus is going to be wiped out. Syria taken out of the equation, basically. 
All of this leads me to believe that Damascus will be destroyed before the tribulation begins. I believe that Damascus is about to so threaten Israel's existence by either launching or furnishing biochemical weapons or radi- radioactive dirty bombs that Israel will nuke them. Israel has sworn that it will implement the Samson option, what it calls the Samson option, against any nation that attacks them with any form of weapons of mass destruction, and that means thermonuclear weapons as well. This may soon happen to Syria. So Israel has said, look, if any one of you guys around us, our enemies, attacks us with any non-conventional weapons, whether it be biological, radiological, chemical, uh, whatever, we're going to employ what they call the Samson option. Of course, Samson, remember how he took out the temple uh, of the Philistines while they were all sitting in the temple, and he, ki- he killed himself, but he killed his enemies in the process? Israel's basically saying, if you think we're going down, we're not going down alone. We will we'll nuke the entire region if, if you guys come after us with any kind of non-conventional weapons. And that brings us really back to this idea that what is going to bring these nations in Ezekiel 38 into this battle? Well, I think that Syria is feeling its oats. Listen, right now Syria is in the midst of a civil war, right? What better way to direct everyone's attention away from trying to overthrow Assad than to focus their anger against Israel, right? If in an attempt to squash the uprising uh, and to stop the civil war, they attack Israel, because listen, only people that the people of Syria hate more than their government is Israel. But what if they attack Israel and then Israel goes ahead and nukes Damascus? Won't that be the hook that God will use to bring Russia into this conflict? Again, Ezekiel 38, verse 4, God says, I will turn you around. I will put hooks in your jaws and draw you into this conflict. It sounds like Russia doesn't really want to go to war. But because they have made a treaty with Iran and Syria, they have no choice. Israel nukes Damascus. Uh, Around Damascus, there are no doubt Russian soldiers. Russia's um, uh, honor is at stake now. So Russia feels honor-bound to go in then, leading a coalition of Muslim nations against Israel. I believe this could be the very thing that causes the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 to take place, Israel nuking Damascus. Now, there is another prophecy. Turn to Psalm 83. This is another prophecy of a future battle. Now, we don't know if this battle will precede the one in Ezekiel 38 and 9, some believe it will. I kind of think it will as well. But we don't know. We do know that this has not happened yet. This is prophetic, even from our point in history. Let's read Psalm 83. And let's just read the first eight verses. The psalmist says, Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and and the Ishmaelites at Saudi Arabia, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon, and Amalek, that's all Jordan. 
Philistia, the area of Gaza or modern Palestine, the Palestinians, with the inhabitants of Tyre, that's Lebanon, which Syria has given assistance to. Also, it mentions in verse 8, Assyria has also joined with them. That's modern Iraq. And they have helped the children of Lot, which is Jordan. One commentator, pastor, author Jim Boyce said, and I quote, What is significant about the specific peoples listed in the ongoing flow of the psalm is that they form an almost complete circle of entrapment around Israel. We know of no time in Israel's history when these ten powers were actually arrayed against her. Until now, we're seeing them all coming together. And what has kind of precipitated much of this um, has been what we, what we have seen over the last couple of years, these, these Arab Springs. Of course, that's what the news media called them, right? Which was people in like Egypt and other places rising up and throwing out dictators. Which we thought, oh, what a, see, we need to get behind this. These are going to throw out these dictators and that will pave the way for democracy and pro-Western leaders to be put into power. Think again. What happened? That it paved the way for pro-West sentiment? and No, it gave way to the Muslim Brotherhood and radical Muslims. These dictators were bad, but they weren't radical Muslims. Okay? Now you have a much worse scenario that's taken place. Instead of bringing democracy and pro-Western leadership to these nations, it has instead put Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood in power, which has made these countries more militant, more anti-American, and more determined to destroy Israel and wipe her off the map. And so again, countries like Egypt and Turkey, which were moderate, basically, and friendly to the West, have become more militant and unfriendly to America. And mark my words, if Assad's regime does fall, and I think it probably will, look for uh, radical Muslims to take over Syria, uh, like the Brotherhood, and make Syria even more hateful of America and determined to wipe out Israel. What am I saying? I'm saying, boy, we are living in exciting times prophetically. Biblical prophecy is being fulfilled right before our eyes. The stage is being set for the final scenario, which is going to bring the Antichrist into power, and then seven years the return of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth to establish his kingdom. Now, before we end today, and I want to pick this up uh, the week after Resurrection Sunday, but I'd like to look at one more end times prophecy. This one does not come out of the Bible. It's an extra-biblical prophecy that comes from a Catholic archbishop who lived in the 12th century whose name was St. Malachi. And many of you have been, have been following the prophecies of St. Malachi. You've been sending me emails, been talking about it. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, let me read to you what Malachi's biographer said about him. Okay, get you a, a reference of what we're talking about. Uh, he said that St. Malachi was visiting Rome in the year 1139 when he went into a trance and received a vision. Malachi wrote down this extraordinary vision in which he claims to have foreseen all of the popes following Pope Innocent II until the destruction of the church and the return of Jesus Christ. He named exactly 112 popes from that time until the end. St. Malachi wrote a few prophetically descriptive words in Latin about each one of the popes. He then gave the manuscript of Pope Innocent and it was deposited in the Vatican archives where it was forgotten for several centuries. Then in 1590, it was rediscovered and published. The interesting thing is that scholars have matched the brief descriptive predictions with each of the popes. Now, since this last pope has been um, put in power, we have all 112 popes. So they have actually, scholars have actually uh, taken these 
these brief descriptions that Malachi wrote in, and they, they have compared them to the various popes and um, since Pope Innocent II. The author says, though they are a bit obscure, they fit the general profile of each of the popes. Now, there's not much on some of these popes, so I'll let you decide if there's enough there for you to think, well, that really doesn't fit the guy or whatever, okay? It's a little vague. Um, I'm not going to go back to the beginning. I'll just start with some of the more recent ones. The 107th Pope, this would be the 107th Pope since Innocent II, was Pope John XXIII, who served from 1958 to 1963. The prophecy said of him, Pastor at Nauta, which means Pastor and Marine. And prior to his election to the pontificate, he was the Patriarch of Venice, which is the Marine city, home of the gondolas and so on. Pope number 108 was Pope Paul VI, who served from 1963 through 1978. Uh, it was said of him in the prophecy, Flos Florum, which means flower of flowers. His papal coat of arms displayed three lilies. Pope 109 was John Paul I, who served in 1978. Uh, about him, the prophecy says, and forgive my Latin pronunciation, I'm sure I'm messing it up, the uh, Mediate Lunae, which means from the midst of the moon. Albino Luciani was born in Canale di Argado, a diocese of Belluno, of Belluno, which means beautiful moon. Elected Pope on August 26th, his reign lasted about a month from half moon to half moon. So in the midst of the moon was the prophecy. And he was born in a diocese known as the beautiful moon and reigned or served from half moon to half moon, only lasted about a month in office. Of course, he was followed by the 110th Pope in Malachi's prophecy, uh, John Paul II, who served from 1978 to 2005. And the prophecy of this Pope simply says, De Labore Solis, which means of the eclipse of the sun. Now, Carol, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrongly, Voitla, was born on May 18, 1920. That would be Pope John Paul II, of course. He was born during a solar eclipse. There was also a solar, solar eclipse on April 8, 2005, the day of his funeral. So the prophecy said of the eclipse of the sun, he was born during a solar eclipse, was buried during a solar eclipse, and so on. Well, the 111th Pope was Benedict XVI. It says of him in Malachi's prophecy, Gloria Olive, which means the glory of the olives. It was originally thought that this pope would be from the order of St. Benedict. The Benedictines were also known as the Olivetans. Of course, we know that the man who eventually succeeded John Paul II was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who took the name Benedict XVI. Traditionally, in both the Old and the New Testaments, the olive branch is a symbol of peace. Many commentators took that to mean that this pope... Uh, would reign as Pope uh, during a time of peace. And I think pretty much that was true. Well, for the prophecy of St. Malachi concerning the 112th Pope from Innocent, that would be the 268th Pope total. And Malachi says would be the final Pope. Here's what he says about this final Pope. It gives us a little more. The prophecy goes like this. In the final persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will reign Petrus Romanus, which means Peter the Roman, who will feed his flock amid many tribulations, after which the seven-hilled city, Rome, will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge, Jesus Christ, will judge the people. So the Lord will return, judge the earth, and set up his kingdom is the idea. We know on March 13th of this year, 
that Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio became the new pope and promptly took the name Francis, which totally threw all of us, okay? Uh, in honor of Francis of Assisi, we're waiting for some guy named Peter or this, you know, and, and he takes the name Francis, all right? And that threw us because we're looking for a person that would fit the title Peter the Roman, all right? But let me throw this out to you. If it floats your boat, great, all right? It may not. Uh, you may say, you're really stretching it. You're really grabbing for straws. Maybe, I don't know, Okay. First of all, we know that Cardinal Bergoglio is of Italian descent. He was born in Argentina, but is, a, is of Italian descent. He's a Roman, just like Francis of Assisi was, by the way. Interestingly, Francis of Assisi was baptized Giovanni by his mother. His dad was out of town when he was born. When his dad came home, I don't like that name, he named him Francesco. That means Francis' original name was Francesco di Pietro di Bernardone. Bernardone was his last name. Pietro was his father's name, but in that culture, the father's name became your middle name. And, of course, Pietro in English is what? Peter. Peter. So Pope Francis was born an Italian, a Roman, who took the name Francis after Francis of Assisi, whose middle name, whose middle name was Peter. Now, does that fulfill Malachi's prophecy that the last pope would be called Peter the Roman? I don't know. I'll let you decide that. But if Malachi is right, and I'm not saying he is, that this pope will be the last pope before Jesus returns to judge the world and set up his kingdom. It means that this pope will be the pope during the tribulation period. One author brought up something, something I found very interesting. Let me quote him. He said uh, that Bergoglio, the final pope on St. Uh, Malachi's list, and the one prophesied to reign over the church as it enters the great tribulation period, named himself after St. Francis of Assisi, is intriguing given that shortly before his death, Francis of Assisi prophesied that at the time of the tribulation, a man would, quoting him, a man would be raised to the pontificate who, by his cunning, will endeavor to draw many into error and death, end quote. Now, guys, it's hard for me to believe that a man as gentle and kind as Cardinal Bergoglio has demonstrated himself to be over the years. And you've probably all been watching this on TV and he seems like a genuinely kind, humble man. It's hard for me to get my mind around the fact that this man could be the false prophet of the tribulation period. As many evangelicals believe, the false prophet will be a Roman pontiff. And that's why I'm still not sure about St. Malachi's prophecy. I'm not trying to sell this to you. I'm not trying to pass off with biblical truth. I'm just saying it's an interesting prophecy, right? But I'm still not convinced it's accurate, okay? Although anything is possible. And only time is going to tell. I do remember, though, as I was studying for this, this message, when we did our Revelation study back in 06, and we came to Revelation 13, which talks, first of all, about the coming of the Antichrist, the world leader who would unite the world in a one-world government. It then goes on to talk about the false prophet, a religious leader, who would unite the whole world in a one-world church. And listen to the description that John gives us of this second leader, this false prophet. Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. When we gave that study, I brought it out that he will have the character of a lamb, the false prophet, which means giving the appearance of gentleness and harmlessness but he's going to talk like a dragon. Don't let that throw you. That simply means the dragon is Satan. That simply means 
He is going to be gentle and humble, but he's going to speak lies. Lies that he believes are the truth. You know, when I gave that study in 06, the Dalai Lama was in town. And of course, everybody was enthralled with the Dalai Lama. You know, man of peace and blah, 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 and interviewing the Dalai Lama. Well, as they interviewed this guy, I thought, you know, this is really, he's really a nice guy. You know? Very disarming and charming, you know? The trouble is, he speaks doctrines of demons. Hinduism has been fed satanic lies. Now, you can be a nice guy and think you're giving people truth and still be speaking out of the mouth of Satan. So, the fact that if this Pope is going to be the false prophet, he is a very humble and kind man, but that doesn't mean he can't, in the name of thinking he's doing the right thing, lead people and eventually worshiping the Antichrist. So, Time will tell. I don't mean to offend Catholics. Uh, I was raised in the Catholic Church. My wife and I were married in the Catholic Church. We have many families who are still Catholics. We love them. I'm just saying that, you know, the Bible has some interesting things to say uh, about what I believe about the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Let me just give you one more thing and we'll close. There was an experience that Francis of Assisi had which defined his life from that moment on. It occurred at the ruined chapel of St. San Damano, outside the gate of Assisi. When Francis heard the crucifix above the altar command him, Go, Francis, and repair my house, which, as you see, is well nigh in ruins. Go repair my house. Speaking of a Catholic church that had been either destroyed, destroyed in some way, but many believe that Francis, uh, his role was much larger than repairing one church, that God was calling him to be a repair of the church, the Catholic church. And could this be the reason that Cardinal Bergoglio took the name Francis? Because he sees himself also as one who's going to unite the church. Roman Catholics have not been um, ignorant of this. I heard on TV over the last few days that they, they quoted this very incident. and said they believe that this pope is going to be the man who is going to repair the Catholic Church. After all the scandals and pedophile priests and so on, he's going to be the guy who's going to bring the Roman Catholic Church together and unite it once again. Maybe. Maybe. It's much broader than that. You know, we have talked about this, but for a long time, the Roman Catholic Church has seen itself as the global church of the future, headquartered in Rome with the Pope as its spiritual leader. That's not my words. That's their words. John Paul II, on more than one occasion, gathered together for prayer there at the Vatican. Listen to me, I'm not making this up. Witch doctors, spiritists, animists, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and other leaders of world religions declaring that they were all quoting him, praying to the same God, and credited credited their prayers with generating, again, quoting him, profound spiritual energies that would create a new climate for peace. John Paul II addressing 1,500 leaders of the great world religions at the international prayer meeting in 2001 said, to all these world religious leaders, we can no longer bear the scandal of division. Hey, God's in all of our religions. Why are we fighting? We need to come together. Great uniter, right? That was John Paul's approach. I think this Pope is also picking up where he left off and is trying to unite more than the Catholic Church I think he took this name because he sees himself as a uniter of maybe the world's religions. I don't know. Here's something you might find interesting. In 2002, 
Pope John Paul called a meeting for peace in guess where? Assisi, Italy. Interesting. Leaders from the Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant religions all attended. They all came at the beck and call of John Paul II. So these religious leaders are looking to the Pope to be a leader over them. And by the way, at this meeting, the name of Jesus Christ was not mentioned one time. And all Christian symbols, including crosses, were all covered so as not to offend and promote unity among all these world leaders, religious leaders. Listen to what Vatican II states. You think I'm making this stuff up. Vatican II states, and I quote, The Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in other religions. Their doctrines often reflect the ray of truth which enlightens all men. Let Christians preserve and encourage the spiritual and moral truth found among non-Christians. End quote. The Catholic Church is sounding more and more like the mother church of a one-world religion. When asked, can you still get to heaven without Jesus? Nigerian Cardinal Francis Arins, the Pope's deputy for outreach. Now, outreach, reaching out to uh, non-Catholics to unite. Can you get to heaven without Jesus? The question was posed to him. Here's what he said. Expressly, yes. God's grant of salvation includes not only Christians, but Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and listen, people of goodwill. What does that mean? So if I'm a person of goodwill, I'm saved? What was the Great Commission all about? Go into all the world and, and preach the good news and teach people what I've taught you, Jesus said. Make disciples. I mean, if people of goodwill and every other faith under the sun that have sincere people in it, everyone gets to heaven, why send missionaries out to the mission field where they are tortured and, and, and killed for their faith? Just let them do what they want to do and be people of goodwill. I mean, was Paul the Apostle mistaken when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it and it alone is the power of God into salvation? Was Paul mistaken? I don't know if you knew this, but the Roman Catholic Church is working on the catechism of the universal or world church as reported by Time magazine in an effort to bring all faiths under one roof. With the Pope as its leader? Sounds like it. Again, you might be thinking, Phil, are you saying the Pope will be the false prophet? I'm not saying that. I don't know. I wouldn't dismiss the possibility. Look, while many hold the prophecy of Malachi to be true, let me just say this. There is a far more authoritative source that we can turn to to look for what's coming in the world. And that's the word of God, right? We don't need Malachi, Gene Dixon, Nostradamus, Edgar Casey. We don't need any of those people to tell us what's coming. We have God's word. And it's very clear. God has given us a whole book. The book of Revelation tells us what's coming. Paul warned that the last days would be marked by an increase of false teaching. He said this teaching would even come into the church. People in the church would no longer want to hear sound doctrine, but would gather to themselves teachers. They would embrace doctrines of demons that were Christianized, brought into the church. You have Christian yoga, Christian transcendental meditation, all these things right now in the church. Paul called these last days perilous times. And Jesus said because of the increased rebellion against the law of God, people would become more and more lawless, violent, and the love of many would grow cold. Have you watched the news this weekend? You see how in Georgia, two young guys, 17, 14, came up to a woman who was just out walking her one-year-old son in a stroller, just out enjoying the weather, nice day. This kid comes up, points a gun at her and says, look, give me your money. She's got a jogging outfit on. She doesn't have any money. I don't have any money. Really? 
No, she's a, you know, my baby has taken all my money. I mean, having a child is expensive. Really? Walks around to the front of the stroller, shoots the baby in the head, kills it. Shoots the mother, but she survived. And then I just watched on 2020 Friday night how that there was some kind of a party somewhere. A young 16-year-old girl came. They must have put something in her drink. She was out cold. And they carried her around, raped her, several of them, while others videoed it on their cell phones and put it out on the web, which wasn't bad enough, the, the callousness of that. But you should have seen the tweets that came in, laughing, mocking, thinking it was funny. You tell me the love of many hasn't grown cold today? That's another sign that we're living in the last days. How should we respond? Should we get all angry and... Look, let me just read you what Paul says we should do. We'll close. In Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, Paul says, and do this. Here's what we're to do in the light of all that's going on. Knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. The church is sleeping. We need to get up. You know, we need to wake up and start serving the Lord. He said, it's high time to awake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night of, is far spent. The days at hand. The night of man's rebellion is almost over, guys. The new day of Christ's coming and establishing his kingdom. That's almost upon us. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, put on Christ. Walk in the Spirit, Right? Live a holy life. Be a light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul said in Philippians 2. Let your light shine. Show the world we're different. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's God's command to us in these last days. The next time we'll continue looking at the signs that point to Jesus coming. Just want to spend another week on this. I mean, I want to whet your appetite, but uh, his coming is near, even at the door. And I'll tell you what, as I look at this world, I feel like John more and more, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in darkness, that these things should overtake us as a thief. You've given us many signs, many prophecies that point to the coming of our Savior. And Lord, they're being fulfilled all around us. It is high time to awake out of sleep. Give us grace, Lord, to stop being entangled with the world and start living like soldiers of Christ. To get out there, let our light shine and speak up for you, Lord. The days are evil. Give us grace to walk in the light. And Father, we thank you that, Lord, you're coming soon to fix this mess we have made. This is not the world you wanted us to live in. This is a world of man's rebellion. And Lord, we are sick and tired of living with man's rebellion. We want to live in a world where you are on the throne. And where people love you and obey you a world of peace and harmony, love and unity. We just praise you, Lord. We look for your coming. Give us grace to be watchful. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.